this is Andy Colasar, partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group, welcoming you to our LAWS podcast. LAWS stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. Today, we have a special guest, Mike Hardy, who was my partner for many years at Thompson Hines. Mike's going to give us some historical perspective on environmental laws and the practice of environmental law. I'll mention at the outset that Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group has been recognized for many years as one of the go-to practices in the state and region. We currently have 12 full-time environmental lawyers in our Ohio, New York, and Atlanta offices. And we handle the full range of environmental law issues, including litigation, enforcement defense, permitting, compliance counseling, remediation, among other things. So why do I mention this about our group on this podcast with Mike Hardy, um, and particularly that the group is highly regarded? Well, I'm, I'm proud to be part of it, but I mention it because our guest is the lawyer who started the group back when environmental law, as we know it today, was in its infancy. And Mike built it into what it is today. Mike, welcome to the Laws podcast. Thank you. I, I assume it's safe to say that the group wasn't doing podcasts back when you started to practice with Thompson Hine. When I started practice at Thompson Hine, we did not even have fax machines. <laughs> All right, I, I hear you. So I'm not planning to give a long introduction of Mike, uh, but for the benefit of those listeners who, who don't know him, um, I'll note that Mike graduated from the University of Michigan Law School in 1972 and over time became one of the most well-respected and highly regarded environmental lawyers in Ohio and beyond. Mike served as lead trial counsel in numerous high-profile environmental cases under the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Superfund, along with the defense of citizen suits and toxic tort claims, among other things. Mike was the trusted advisor of many companies who relied on his knowledge, experience, and judgment when those companies were managing environmental risk. So thanks again, Mike, for um, participating today. Um, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about how and when you got involved in environmental law and what was going on during that time period? Sure, Andy. When I went to law school from 1969 to 1972, most of the significant statutes that we know today did not exist. And in fact, um, the, the subject environmental law was not taught at Michigan and it probably wasn't taught at many law schools, if any, at that point in time. Um, the closest thing I took to a law, uh, an environmental law class probably was um, land use planning. 
there was a professor, Joe Sachs, who was thought to be deemed to be the father of environmental law professors for many, many years. He taught something called water law, but I didn't take that. That was mostly riparian rights. So anyway, fast forward, I get out of the law school. I go into the army. I come back um, in 1973. And one of the opportunities that was available to me was to allocate 25% of my time to doing environmental work for the local um, public utility. And at that time, they were facing primarily permitting challenges for air and water. RICRA had not been passed, had been not, had not hadn't, uh, been enacted. Circle was clearly down the road a ways. Tosca, same way. Tosca and Rick were, what, 76, as I recall. And I'm talking about 1973. And because the public utility here, Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, like most of the utilities, was coal based, coal fired, that dictated a lot of their problems. The air pollution was formidable. Water pollution was formidable too because of the uh, use of the the fly the uh, fly ash disposal problems. For Cleveland Electric, the problems were magnified because they were an urban utility, meaning that they were located on largely uh, cramped plant sites, giving them very little flexibility. So the biggest um, the the biggest opportunity I had at the uh, at the beginning was the participation in the variance adjudication hearings before the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency. At that time, Ohio EPA was fully licensed by the, state, uh, by the United States Environmental Protection Agency to do all permitting under the Clean Air Act. And um, Ohio required compliance with its uh, statewide emission limitations for power plants, I think of one pound per million BTU at the time. In three years, the utilities generally filed uh, permits for variances. The variance applications were denied because they did not commit to that one pound per million BTU. That led to adjudication hearings that lasted eight weeks to 10 weeks in Columbus. And that's where many of us of that generation got our start. So let me just um, go back to, so you said that you were dedicating approximately 25% of your time um, at, at the beginning of your career, yes. right? Yes, I was, and, I was doing other things as well, but they were subsumed quickly. So, so how did you, how did you become involved in the environmental law practice? Um, I'm sure there were other people that could have been selected. There, uh, well, we had a, an, another young associate who was also helping on some environmental litigation that was not um, related to the utility. Um, they, they, listen, as I said, I came back from the army. I had a full, I had a open open plate, if you will. And they asked me if I would like to do this. And I said, sure, it's an opportunity. It's not something I knew a great deal about. 
Um, but I took, I seized the uh, opportunity and then made the best of it. So were you living in Cleveland? Um, in the, you know, I, I believe the, the fire of the Cohoga River happened in 1969, or at least- the River oh, fire God. was 1969. I was either in college or just beginning law school. I mean, did that, I mean, was that a, a big deal in the local community then? I don't remember it as being anything more than another news event um, that caught nationwide attention and brought uh, a lot of, uh, made Cleveland a butt of some jokes. Um, what I remember being the more significant thing happened when I was in law school and that was Earth Day, April 22nd, and I think it was 1970. And many of the universities shut down for that day in honor of Earth Day. I remember that very clearly. And um, that that's more prominent in my mind. Okay. So you mentioned, um, you, you started with the Clean Air Act, uh, but we, you know, the Clean Water Act about the same time period. And then subsequently, uh, RICRA in 1980, and, and then Superfund. So, so these companies um, that you were representing were all of a sudden um, dealing with a lot of new laws and regulations and enforcement. Um, how, how were those companies reacting or responding to, um, to, that, to that new regime? You know, I should mention before I answer that question, there was one other unique opportunity that came my way by reason of working for the utility. And that was they were building two nuclear power plants on Lake Erie, the Davis Bessie plant and the Perry nuclear power plant, both of which are still in existence today. And they both had very significant water pollution permitting issues. They wanted to use something called once-through cooling. The regulatory agencies wanted to use cooling towers. Those are the things that we now associate with power plants, the cooling towers. Um, and on top of that, <clears throat> a licensing of those, I was involved in the licensing of the power lines that came out of those power plants. And those transmission lines had to be permitted on the basis of a demonstrated minimal impact on the environment. The statute actually says the words a little bit differently, but I think I mentioned that only because as we sit here today in 2023, this country is going to go through another rush of power of transmission line siting and permitting because of alternative energy. The only way to make alternative energy work, of course, is to get the power from the remote locations to the urban areas, and that's by way of bulk transmission lines. So anyway, um, 
how are the utilities dealing with the um, changing environment of environmental laws? In Ohio, there was something called the Ohio Electric Utility Institute, which um, consisted of the um, all of the major investor-owned electric utilities plus a um, rural electric cooperative called Buckeye Power, which was also a client for whom I had done work. Some they they were a joint owner of the Cardinal power station on the Ohio River. And so they had the same issues of dealing with coal-fired emissions. Um, and also the the Ohio utilities were members of larger groups um, like in based in in um, Washington DC, like the Edison Edison Electric Institute utility air regulatory group and the like. And those those were combination of um, lobbying groups and um, um, they would be involved in litigation, major litigation over regulations. So, you know, in my, I, I came around or came along a little bit after you, but um, it, it seemed to me that in the 80s, uh, companies were still trying to figure out, um, you know, how to manage the, the, the new regulations and the new risks. And it seemed to me that, you know, companies were, were perhaps a bit more likely to fight um, and, and battle with the agencies um, over enforcement issues and, and things like that. And then over time, you know, what we see now, as you know, you know, is more of a proactive nature of, of, of big companies, you know, that sort of learned from the past and uh, became more proactive with their environmental management systems. Um, is that your experience that you saw that evolution of, of companies? Well, there was no question that early in the year, early years, um, 70s and the 80s, there was a great deal of litigation in the industry. Uh, the industry was <clears throat> um, facing uh, very expensive technological changes that would be necessary to comply. The industry in Ohio the utilities often either were owners or they were on contracts for long-term supplies of Ohio coal. Ohio coal was high in sulfur. It was a very difficult, it was a very, very difficult situation facing the utilities. Region five in the region five states, I think most of the utilities in, in the region five states were of similar mind because they were all dealing with the same kind of technology and the use of the same kind of um, high sulfur coals. And then, then um, uh, by 1977, the Clean Air Act was amended. I believe it was section 125. It was designed to incent the utilities to use um, scrubbers, but they started to use 
low sulfur coal from Kentucky, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And that started a whole series of other battles. And um, it went on from there. So um, I, I misspoke um, earlier when I was talking about RICRA and CERCLA. RICRA, I believe, was 76, and CERCLA was 80. Um, yep. But let, let's talk a little bit about, about Superfund because, um, you know, that, as we know, that was a major change with respect to liability, um, joint several, strict liability, retroactive, um, got people's attention. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, that era uh, when, when people, companies may have been asking you, or is this, you know, do they really mean that we're liable uh, for something that we did legally 30 years ago? Um, and how, how was that happening? CERCLA did two things. Uh, Superfund CERCLA did two things in 1980. Number one, it made a lot more, it created a lot more environmental lawyers because it was so much bigger than the traditional air, water, solid waste permitting that we were doing in the 70s. Secondly, it changed because it was retroactive in its application, it opened up litigation because people started to do a lot more finger pointing. Well, I, I, that I, wasn't my compound that was in the landfill or in the um, lagoon. It was somebody else's. And um, it took, oh, I'd say four or five years for people in the early 80s to figure out what was really going on with CERCLA. There was, um, I remember some of the early sites in Ohio. Um, th the industries involved, the companies involved were some of the blue bloods, if you will, some of the blue chips, I should say, of the uh, New York Stock Exchange. And um, they would hire, all of them would hire good lawyers. And then those, those lawyers would hire lawyers. And it was very, very, uh, a lot, it took a long time for that to evolve. And I assume there were, uh, th this was getting the attention of the corporate lawyers and the deal makers, um, both in M&A and real estate transactions, um, I, I assume. Yeah, I recall that by the early 80s, I was being asked to review deal documents um, or asked to be doing due diligence on acquisitions. And I still get calls on those, Andy. Some of your your existing partners and associates call me periodically and ask me, do, you, I, do I remember why a deal was structured as it was? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, um, trying to quantify the 
uh, risk of Superfund liability was uh, a very difficult thing to do and, and try to um, work around that in, in contracts was, was a challenge. It's still a challenge, uh, but back then when things were less known and, and more sites were being um, identified, it's more of a more of a risk. Yeah, you know, there was a case in your neighborhood in Cincinnati called Chemdyne, yeah, which uh, was one of the early cases. I think Judge Rubin was the trial judge on it, and he did. He was very. I, I believe he was very much on the frontier of retroactive strict liability, strict and absolute liability, and that really changed. Right from the very beginning, that changed the nature of litigation. No longer was it fault based, like we're all used to. <laughs> now you're dealing with identification of chemicals, tracing chemicals, volumes, allocations, things like that. Well, what did you observe over the years with respect to the expertise of the environmental consultants? Um, you know, who still kind of sticking with the Superfund liability um, of their um, comfort and expertise in, in helping with due diligence and helping to quantify those risks? You know, what I saw from my perspective was um, a growth in the environmental consulting businesses um, the growth that would include um, deep bench strength and expertise in certain areas like civil engineering, soil engineering, epidemiology, toxicology, uh, risk assessment, economic uh, damage forecasts, things like that. Um, in the early days, the uh, consulting firms, in the early, early days of my environmental law uh, practice, I remember the consulting firms tended to be adjuncts to um, colleges and universities. And they were, um, one of the original ones was Stanford Research Institute, where SRI came from, Stanford. Um, over time, these things became mammoth um, professional organizations with multi multidisciplinary organizations. And they they helped, like, like you said in your question, they could help from beginning to end. They could help you scope, determine if there is going to be any liability in that, in that acquisition. And if that acquisition was closed, and ultimately you found some environmental contamination that had to be dealt with, they could, they would be right there to help come up with the plan, sell it to the regulator, price it out and allocate responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly been my experience that over the years, the um, ability of good consultants to help quantify the risks uh, has, has, improved dramatically, um, which, you know, ultimately that's what clients want to hear is, you know, what might this cost? 
um, what's the range of potential liabilities and, and things like that. Mike, I, I wanted to, before we leave Superfund, I, I assume that you agree that Superfund has not necessarily been the most efficient um, law in, in getting sites cleaned up. You know, we, we, we have some sites that uh, are still being litigated and in study for 20, 25 years um, as far as litigation, legal fees, and, and so forth. Uh, I mean, do you agree with that? And if so, do you have any thoughts on how Superfund could have been improved or still could be? Well, I, I agree with your assessment. I I recall the one case up in uh, near. Um, I was involved in litigation arising out of a joint venture chemical plant. I won't mention the names, although it is publicly held, publicly known. It took 19 years for us to resolve that liability, but that included three trials. Um, three appeals to the Sixth Circuit, one attempted appeal to the United States Supreme Court, and that also included fighting over insurance. So, I mean, it just, and at the, I remember when the case came in the door, I was in trial somewhere else and uh, the client said, well, who can look at this while I'm gone, or while I'm tied up and I gave him a name. And I remember looking at the demand letter it was $66 million. I said, "Ooh, this one we might have to take seriously. <laughs> and um, well, our client did not pay $66 million, um, but 19 years of litigation, uh, three phases of it and appeals and so on are remarkable. Likewise, the uh, Dura Avenue landfill out in Toledo, where I was common counsel for a number of industrial in, uh, companies I don't know how many years that took <laughs> and that and that was complicated because the state of Ohio and the federal government were both involved and they were never on the same page. So, um, did I ever come up with a solution? And the answer to that is no. Um, I do think that the early years of having PRP, potentially responsible party meetings, <laughs> led to extra costs, but I didn't, I never saw the solution to that. I rarely participated in the PRP meetings. I was more on the litigation side. The only time in the Dura case, I had to participate in the PRP meetings because I was common counsel. Um, you know, I, I you would have had to come up with a basket of money to deal with legacy liabilities, and there was that was never ever um, close to being accepted in the uh, Congress, federal Congress. Mm -hmm. But I think you would have had to come up with something like that to obviate some of the litigation that we saw through the years. The strict liability, retroactive liability, just was prone to litigation. Right. Well, you uh, you mentioned 
Ohio EPA and um, US EPA and, and maybe some of the, the tension. Uh, I would like to just touch on that uh, next if, if we can. Um, so Ohio EPA was formed in 1972 and um, back in the day uh, was there tension um, between US EPA and Ohio EPA at times or often um, with respect to maybe, um, you know, enforce, you know, how serious uh, an enforcement action would be, um, different things like that, difference of opinions. In 1972, the Ohio General Assembly created the Environmental Protection Agency, as you said, and there was a predecessor agency forget the name of it, some of the professionals from that agency moved over to the Ohio EPA. That was during a uh, the administration of G Governor John Gilligan and the, uh, forgetting, I'm drawing a blank, uh, the director of the Ohio EPA. But anyway, they were very regulated and they were very focused on regulation and working with the US EPA. And so early on, they got their state implementation plans and permitting and regulatory authorities approved by the federal EPA. So that's why when I said I did that utility work in the mid seventies, we were dealing primarily with the Ohio EPA. Change of administrations in Ohio um, they, when the change, when that administration was replaced, coal had much more influence. King Coal in Ohio had, took over, um, had a lot of sway in the, the uh, state capitol building. Um, the Ohio Reclamation and Mining Association or maybe it was Ohio Mining and Reclamation, yeah, Ohio Mining and Reclamation Association was a very, very powerful lobbyist. And that was, that, they represented the coal industry in Southeast Ohio. And that motivated much of Ohio's then positions, um, not unlike West Virginia. Um, West Virginia was similarly motivated because of its, uh, dependency on coal and um, power plant generation, exporting of power. So yes, um, that's how, that's the historical basis of it. There was a time, and I cannot remember the dates, but US EPA actually revoked Ohio's authority, meaning that US EPA did the enforcement in Ohio, and that that rubbed Ohio the wrong way, of course, rubbed the regulated community in Ohio the wrong way because they had they were now dealing with bureaucrats in Chicago, and and Washington D.C. rather than in Columbus, and it it caused a lot of uh, difficulties, and I forget how that was resolved, but it was eventually resolved. I know that we had to in Ohio had to adopt new laws and new implementation plans. Sure. 
So, Mike, you um, you've really made your your name as a um, environmental litigator. Um, what drew you to litigation at the beginning of your practice? Well, um, early on, the practice became litigation because of the variance, air variance, and water uh, water permitting litigation I was involved in in the seventies. Uh, and then because I got involved with the, the Ohio Power Siting Board and Commission uh, licensing uh, over the licensure of uh, the power lines, uh, and then periodically questions would come up over jurisdiction. Example being when the Zimmer plant was going to be converted from a nuclear plant to a coal fire plant, there was some legal questions as to whether that needed to be approved and go through the power siting process. Um, I just was there, you know, I had done it. You know, it, it, there's a lot of, a uh, lot to be said when you can tell a client, well, I've done that already, you know, and that's, I was fortunate to have done that already. Um, there was, um, yeah, I think that, that probably explains it as much as any, you know, Andy, the one of the biggest uh, highest profile matters was when, when I was trial counsel in the um, uh, new source review litigation involving the coal fire power plants in Ohio, the Samus plant. That was the uh, initial case brought by the Clinton administration. We are fighting against the Department of Justice. On any given day, the Department of Justice might have had eight lawyers in the courtroom. <laughs> you uh, you learn how to litigate cases that way. Uh, do you? Uh, you've mentioned um, a couple of cases um, just in the in the past uh, few minutes. Uh, are any others uh, that that stand out um, in your long career as as being really uh, challenging or? Um, one, it's a little bit different. It was kind of a combination of um, products liability and environmental law was a class action brought by people who claimed to be um, hurt by a EPA registered acaricide, uh, a dust mite killer. That, that case was a lot of fun because it was just one step over from environmental law. It had both environmental law with environmental law experts and toxicologists and, and epidemiologists, but it was a, in the federal court, it was a class action. It would have been a jury trial if we hadn't beaten the class action. Um, let's see, there was the, um, I was involved in a number of toxic tort cases. Some people would call them Aaron Brockovich type cases, cases involving exposures to landfills, like the industrial excess landfill, um, escaping methane gas from power uh, from landfills. Um, uh, I represented a cask of spent nuclear fuel as it was shipped from Buffalo to Wisconsin. I, it, 
there, there are a lot of, you know, as a litigator, you get a lot of great opportunities at times. And uh, I remember my grandmother seeing me on television um, on that spent nuclear fuel case because it was, it was a national coverage case. I see. So, Mike, you started your career in the early 70s and um, retired, um, what was it? 2018 or 2019? Yeah, April 30, 2018. Okay. What changes in the practice of law did you observe during that time period? Well, there were many. Um, one of the things uh, that I can reflect on is the speed at which we now do things. I think I made the comment, I don't know if we were on the record about we didn't even have a fax machine when I started. We did not have Federal Express. We did not have computers. We did not have internet. You know, you could get a document. It, it, it might have come to you by overnight mail, um, but you would have a week to turn it around. We don't have that. We didn't have that at the end. Um, the, uh, you, the, uh, availability of technology um we we i think even as i look back at it and realize it at the time but i began to, to see artificial intelligence in in some of the work that was done in the marshalling of um, exhibits and um, graphics and reconstruction of of um, events, things like that. I mean, that just, I, I didn't, I didn't even study in, in Michigan law school. We didn't even have a computer terminal to, to do Lexus work yeah. and now, <laughs> now we can do it on our phone we could do it on our phones. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it really is amazing. Um, you know, the, you, you mentioned AI and, uh, I think it was in the New York Times recently, and they're talking about some of the developments. And they, no, one of the one of the uh, professions that they noted at risk are paralegals, um, but they also mentioned lawyers. Um, so, so I guess we're all on the radar screen there. We'll see how that how that develops. Um, well, listen, um, I I, I want to. Here's my last question for you, and, and I, I really appreciate this has been very interesting. Um, do you have any advice for a college student uh, who is considering a career in law? Yes. Um, love, learn to love to read. Um, and to learn to, or yeah, learn to love to learn. Because for us looking, I just look back on when I did my best work as an environmental lawyer, it was because I understood my client's business as well as the client did. Good advice. Um, Mike, um, we're uh, drawing to the end of this. Is um, any other? thoughts or comments you'd like to make? No, I enjoyed um, the opportunities that I had at Thompson Hine. 
we played, um, we, we had, we worked with the best law firms across the country with the best clients. Um, I, you know, I was proud of being inducted in the American College of Environmental Lawyers. That was a stat, that was a honor that I owe to my stature at Thompson Hine and the stature of Thompson Hine itself. Um, well, we, we, we try to um, carry on the legacy here in, in the group with, um, with his excellent legal service. And, and I know one of the things that, that you preached and taught uh, was client service, um, something yep. that we take seriously at Thompson High and in our environmental group. Well, this concludes uh, this episode of our laws podcast. We look forward to um, continuing to provide um, listeners with current and practical insight into EHS laws. The, the laws podcast episodes are available at iTunes, Spotify, Google, and SoundCloud. If you have a request regarding a topic you'd like to hear addressed in a future episode, please send me or your usual contact at Thompson Hines Environmental Group an email with your request and we'll try to address it. If you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit thompsonhine.com. Finally, this podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thank you, Mike Hardy. Um, this was uh, a, a wonderful experience to hear your insights, and, and thanks to our listeners. Mm -hmm.